Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. So we are going to do five weeks in Philippians, and we're not going to study every single verse. Uh, We're going to start in verse 12 this morning in Philippians. And what you need to know about Philippians is is just simply the backstory of the book. It's four chapters. It's seasoned, consummate, vintage Paul. It's Paul at the end of his life. Uh, It's Paul right before he was martyred. Now, what do you think Paul would say if he knew he's about to die and these are the people he loves? Every word would be precious, right? And so I love the book of Philippians for that reason. But there's a backstory that paints the picture of the book of Philippians. The backstory is the Philippians being non Christians met Paul at a moment of persecution. Paul was fresh into Philippi. He had arrived and met this woman named Lydia, who was a Jewish woman who came to faith in Jesus Christ and invited Paul and Silas to stay at her house. And one day, they're on their way to go down to the river to preach to a gathering of Jews that gathered by the river when this woman started following them and saying, these men are proclaiming the way of salvation. That's the way a demon talks. And... um, you would think Paul would say, hey, this is a great advertisement. Wherever we go, these men are proclaiming the way of salvation. Um, But she had a bad spirit. It was an evil spirit. And it didn't line up with who Paul and Silas were. And so finally, at a moment of frustration, Paul turned and commanded the spirit to come out of the woman. Good and bad because that opened Pandora's box. The woman was a fortune teller, and she was a good one for Wall Street. She told the men in that city what to invest in, and it worked. Now that the spirit was out of the woman, they had no clue how to invest. The businessmen were furious They grabbed a hold of Paul and Silas. They brought him into the courtyard. They beat him up, and then they flogged him. You remember the the 39 lashes that Jesus got? Most people don't think about Paul getting the lashes. And then they locked him up, not just in prison, but in the inner cell of the prison, and they put him in stocks, chaining them to a wall. Now I ask you, is that a bad day? Probably, most of us would say, go back to bed, get out of the other side of the bed. It's not working, right? Midnight, Paul and Silas begin to sing and praise God. Now, who does that? I mean, we would all be seeking therapy, right? Like, I got to figure this one out. I'm wounded. I need inner healing, something to fix me out of this horrendous experience When I see that in the Bible, it's Acts chapter 16. By the way, you get extra credit if you read that. Um, In Acts 16, I see that singing, and I say, I'll have whatever they're having. 
Whoever sings after that kind of day, I want what they're eating. Well, what Paul was having is a word in the book of Philippians that makes up the word. It's three letters, joy. Paul uses this word 16 times in four chapters. Now, to give you a bigger perspective, he only uses the word 40 times in the entire New Testament. One-third of those times is in four chapters. Guess what Paul wants his readers to know? It's joy. And joy, as you'll find this morning in the rest of these five weeks, is a little bit different than how we think of joy. So, just as a precursor, look at the screen, and and you'll see this is where Paul takes us as we go through the book of Philippians. What we're going to find out is your joy that you normally and I normally call happiness, it's bigger. Because joy, unlike happiness, is connected to what you worship. What your significant uh, belief system, what is most important to you, affects your joy. And so if your joy is limited, you need to raise your sights higher, worship someone bigger, uh, go for a belief system that's higher than whatever it is that makes you go up and down in your happiness. And obviously, God, through Jesus Christ, is the ultimate person that we should be worshiping. Uh, the second thing, and this will be next week, by the way, is joy is connected to loving others. You would think it's connected to loving me, loving ourselves. My generation was the generation that was raised with the truth. I put that in quotation marks. You can't love the other people until you learn to love yourself. Have you ever learned that? You've heard that. I spent 20 years trying to love myself. And I wasn't getting anywhere. So I just told everybody else, you're just going to have to wait. <laughs> I'm not loving you, and I'm not loving you, and I'm not loving you, because I am... I haven't found out how to love myself, and so I was spending all this time loving myself and, and trying to love myself, but I'm not very lovable. I'm not, I don't even like me sometimes, so I'm not going to like you. It's actually the reverse, that joy is connected to loving others. It's more blessed to give than to receive and that's the God life. God has given everything away at creation and at salvation. He's just giving and giving because he's got broad shoulders and he knows the secret to joy. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the significant truth of heaven. It's the language of heaven. So we're going to learn that. A third thing we're going to learn is that it's a mindset. It's not a reaction to circumstances. The word happy, uh, it, it, this is a case where, are you there? Yes. Yeah, I think you are. Uh, this is a case where etymology, which is the history of evolution of a word, it really counts. Happiness, it comes from the Latin haps. And haps means chance. 
perhaps, there it is. It's a synonym of perchance, right? Happiness is built on chance. Whether you have chance circumstances that happen in your day, how's your day going? Have a nice day. And, and that determines whether you're happy or not. And so it, it goes up and down like the stock market. Yo-yo, good day, bad day, uh, just whatever circumstances or difficult people in, in your life affect your happiness. But kara, which is the word for joy, and the French use that a lot, Lebanese speak French, uh, kara, some people name their daughters that, this wonderful word for joy is a mindset that's set before the circumstances. Now, I like that. So my joy, which also is an emotion, but a much deeper and more profound emotion, is decided because it's a mindset. I'm deciding to be joyful. Now, obviously, you cannot be joyful unless there's someone higher than anything that you're establishing your joy in, and that's Jesus. And so this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians. They're concerned for him because he's in prison. He's concerned for them because they're out of prison and they're not joyful. So he's writing to them to encourage them and uh, get their joy level up. So now let's go ahead and begin our study. Uh, sorry for the long introduction. Not really. I think it was important. <laughs> but we're going to just quickly look at three tenses of joy. One is, what do we do with our past? How does joy affect our past? One is the present. How does joy affect my now life? And one is the future. How does joy affect the future? So here we go. Verse 12, chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Paul is writing here in the past tense. All the verbs are in the past tense. He's telling them what has happened. And he puts a really great spin on his past. You and I might say, Paul, it has not been good. You were shipwrecked, you landed on the island of Malta, and then a snake bit you, and then you were taken up, and you had to walk up the Amalfi Coast and get to, to Rome, and you've been imprisoned, and it's been bad. Paul doesn't discount any of that. He's not a Pollyanna person that just says, oh, let's just think happy thoughts. He admits, in verse 12, what has happened talks about in verse 13, I am in chains. Verse 14, he says, my chains. So he doesn't dismiss his pain and his difficulties, but what he does is he gives us 
a bigger story. I want you to notice one word here that I think is actually an interesting word. It's the word that's translated really. Malon is the word. And malon has the meaning of something we didn't expect. So we are expecting this, but malon rather instead of, so it's a pivotal term that takes us from what we're looking at to pivot and see things a different way. Let me use this illustration. If you were deciding that you were going to paint a painting and you were going to frame this painting and you said, this is, this is what I saw. I was in the sequoias and this is what I saw. What do you think, Mark? And you show me this little painting of the forest and all I see is green pine needles. And you say, what do you think? And I said, Good job on the pine needles. Amazing pine needles. I've never seen pine needles look so good, but I'm not buying your painting. It's not interesting. Did you see anything else? And you show me the photo that you painted from, and I said, oh my gosh, that's a great photo. There's a barn, there's, there's a cow, there's actually a pond there with some ducks in it, and you see the mountains in the background. Paint that! and include the pine needles. You see what I've done? I've reframed your painting. Most of our discouragement comes from bad framing. We take a bad story, a bad situation that happened in our life and say, this is me. This is my life. And I'm so frustrated because, and I said, well, I can see it's a very tiny painting. Can we stretch it out? Can we make it bigger to see all of life rather than that one little part? Yes, Paul, you are in chains. Yes, Paul, you did have all these things bad happen. But what else has happened? So Paul says, rather, and he reframes his life. And he says, also what has happened is the gospel is being advanced. He, he talks about brothers and sisters and their response in verse 12. He talks about the palace guard in verse 13. And then he talks about the brothers and sisters in verse 14 that are now more confident and bold to share their faith. So that's a good day, not a bad day. But it's a good day because he's reframed the past. The Praetorian Guard was a thousand soldiers that served Caesar Nero in the palace. And the guard changed nine times a day. Nine times a thousand is 9,000 soldiers that knew that Paul was in prison because he loved Jesus. That's good gospel preaching. And the brothers and sisters are emboldened now because Paul's doing it. Why not me? And the gospel's going out. And Paul says, it's a great painting. My past is amazing. Ever since Sigmund Freud 
Our society has been obsessed with their past, and it's trickled into the church as well, where I can't live a good life until you heal my past. And we keep, which we get that. Nobody had a perfect past. Your parents weren't all perfect. But Sigmund Freud created a a whole Western culture mindset that said, you can't be happy in the present because you're your dad. You can't be happy in the present because of your mom. Fix that. And so people have spent three to five years on a couch with a psychoanalyst trying to interpret what, and you know, you're never going to fix your mom and dad. Now, I'm, I'm not bagging on inner healing or, or, or saying deal with that, but at some point you have to reframe your life. What did Jesus do in your life in spite of what happened that you would be in church on this September day? Something happened out of your past that that's amazing that you would go to church on a beautiful post-summer day. I think it's amazing that I'm preaching in a church. I, I didn't think forever that I would be a preacher. I thought that ministers were one of the most worthless occupations on the planet. Some of you, I see your face saying, well, (laughs) hang in there, give me a chance. (laughs) Something happened in your past In spite of it, I'm not saying God did it. I'm not saying that evil is good. But I am saying what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And all things in the Greek means all things. So what if in our present, we look back at our past and say, somehow God is using that junk for my good. Whoa. Now you're a dangerous person because you're no longer a victim of your past. You're no longer singing the song, I could have been amazing if it wasn't for them. Because it's just not an interesting song. No longer a victim. You're dangerous because you are reframing your past to see the fingerprints of God involved. Jan and I had some amazing conversations with refugees. We would sit down on a picnic table and uh, we'd suddenly have six or nine people sitting there that either spoke Arabic or French and Arabic and, um, and we speak neither. And fortunately, a, a person that spoke and was trans, a translator would see us and come over and rescue us and we heard the most amazing stories. I'm telling you, women that said, could you pray for us? We still don't know uh, where our 16-year-old daughter that ISIS took is. I, I want to cry. That just sounds like the worst day of, of the universe. Or our 14-year-old son was taken by ISIS and enlisted into the soldier, uh, the, the army of ISIS. We hope we find him. 
But they all ended by saying, but you know what? In all my pain, I have come from Islam to Jesus. And I've come to know Jesus. And even though I'm a refugee, even though I can't get a job in Lebanon because it's, they're all, in Lebanon is inundated with illegal refugees, um, they're having a good day <laughs> because they've met Jesus. Now, I tell you, when I compare my life to them and I just say, you know, they burnt my pizza. I, you know, that's what I deal with here in, in Carlsbad. So I need my eyes opened to believe that God's fingerprints are in my past, right? Let me move you on to the present. Paul says in verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? We might say with an English colloquialism, whatever. The important thing, see, Paul keeps his eye on the ball. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, in the present tense, I rejoice. So what do you do when life in the present serves you lemons? My grandmother would say, you make lemonade. Can you all make a lemon face for me for a moment? Kind of like if you bite into a lemon... What does that do to you? Yeah, we've all had bad days, lemon-faced days. But, but Paul knows how to turn things into lemonade. So what he's dealing with is preachers. Ugh! Preachers who are using the gospel to advance their ego, to be more important than Paul. He's not talking about heretics here. He's not talking about what he deals with with the Judaizers who thought you need Jesus as the Messiah and the law. He's talking about people with good doctrine and bad motives, that they want to somehow be important. And yeah, there's a lot of room for narcissism in the pulpit, for people who want to be important to use the pulpit But Paul, rather than looking at that, he says, but get a bigger picture here. What's happening? (laughs) Even from false motives, the gospel's getting out. And I rejoice. Wow. What do you do with this guy? Takes the past, gets a bigger picture, takes the present, gets a bigger picture. The important thing, he's keeping his eye on the ball. He's looking for the higher cause, and he makes lemonade. There's a wonderful story out of World War II. Viktor Frankl, 
who is actually, ironically, a disciple of Sigmund Freud. And he gets to a concentration camp because he's Jewish, and psychoanalysis doesn't work. What do you do? I mean, everybody's about to go to the gas chamber, and he, he doesn't have time to put everybody on a couch and say, well, how did you feel about your mom and dad? But he starts taking notice of the people who are thriving in the concentration camp, who are buoyant in spirit and making each day the best that it can be. And he notices, this is great, because this is a scientific study, he notices that the people who are emotionally more buoyant have a purpose to live for once they get out of camp. Whether they do or not, they are living for what they get once they're out of camp. The people that are just living for today are sadder and more depressed. And he starts a whole new therapy called logotherapy, which is the idea of you, you got to come up logo meaning a word. You got to have a word, a vision, a dream of what you're living for beyond today. And when he's released out of camp, he starts a whole new therapy. I'm not saying he was a Christian. I'm not saying, but there's, there's a parallel here to the Apostle Paul where he, like a parent, is helping the kids see beyond the present. Now, what about the future? I uh, talked about the future three weeks ago. You probably don't remember me, rem remember, but tell me you do, just to make me feel better. I told you that all fear and anxiety comes out of the future, and it robs you of your present, right? Am I right or am I right? I'm right. But there's other things that rob you of your present out of the future. Greed, you're thinking of what I could have to be really happy, that's out of the future. You don't have it. Coveting, envy, lust, all of these things that you're wanting out of the future are robbing you from enjoying your present. So Paul now deals with his future. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So at the end of verse 18, he goes from the present tense of rejoice to the future tense of I will continue to rejoice. Why? For I know that through your prayers and the help of, given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, we don't know if Paul is actually going to be delivered or not. If you read chapter 2, you find out he still doesn't know. But what he's doing here at the very end of this verse 19, he's quoting from the book of Job. The phrase will where he says, will turn out for my deliverance is an exact quote from the book of Job. Job had a bad experience, but said this. Paul's quoting Job for his experience. He goes on to say, so I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
he, he wants to make sure that he stands tough in the pocket against Caesar. When that moment comes and he's in front of Caesar and he says, are you a Christian or not? Do you believe in Jesus or not? Do you believe that he rose again? That he would have the courage to be bold for his faith, knowing it means his death. Then he gives us this amazing quote that most of us know. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow. When I think about living, I think of Christ. When I think about dying, I think about going to be with Christ, and that's gain. In fact, in the original, there's no verb here. And my Arab listeners in Lebanon let me know that in the Arabic, there's no verb here. So if you say it without the verb, I think it has more punch, like a business bottom line. For to me, to live Christ, to die, gain. Very punchy. So when you and I, when I think about the future, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. And most of us, can we admit that we don't know? I mean, we're not facing martyrdom, but there's a war zone out here on the five. Did you know? You're going to get on an airplane and someone next to you is going to be coughing. Did you know? You know, you're going to shake hands with someone with typhoid. Did you know? I mean, it's just, this is not a safe world. 100% chance if Jesus doesn't come soon, you're going to die. I know, you're thinking, and I gave money in the offering to hear that. I don't know why that's a shock to everybody. It's a given. For thousands of years, Homo sapiens have been dying. So for me, to live today and tomorrow, what's your highest purpose? More money. More this. Get, get, get. How about... I don't get get more money. That's great. Get more health. That's great. Knock yourself out. Get more friends. That's awesome. Get, but aim higher. Keep going higher. What's your highest purpose? What can you come up with? And the highest purpose is Christ. To live with everything I do, I bring the fingerprints of Jesus into my friends, into my neighborhood, at business, the love of Jesus. That is a big, hairy, audacious goal. And to die? Hot dog. In the presence of the man that I live for, Jesus. Now, what do you do with this guy? Paul has checkmate on life. You understand that from chess, right? He's cornered life. There's... What can you do to him? Paul, if you don't shut up and stop living for Jesus, we're killing you. Hot dog. (laughs) All right, then. We're going to make you live. You're going to have to live. Great. Bring it on. For to me, if I live Christ, if I die, 
gang. Wow. I'll have whatever he's having. Paul's bottom line, and he had done a lot of thinking about this. By the way, uh, there's some science behind this. I don't have time to go into it, but doctors, Christian doctors, Minrith and Meyer, have documented in their, in their book, Happiness is a Choice, that uh, people that struggle with depression can actually learn to decide beforehand. And I'm not saying it's a cure-all and not saying that it solves your problem. I'm, I'm sure your problem is bigger than I know. But nevertheless... Uh, that you're, you're not a victim. You can decide how you view your past. You can decide how you view your present. You can decide how you view your future. That's a good story. Listen, Hollywood makes movies out of telling us good stories, right? I, I judge airplane flights by how many movies I can watch. And, and, I, and I know from here to Dubai is eight movies and you still got four hours to go. <laughs> Your eyeballs are just going, you know. So do you want to know what makes a good movie? I figured it out and I actually took a course on it from a USC professor. It, she broke the code on it. So a good movie goes like, good story. So it starts out, and within the first 25 minutes are about establishing normal life. There's the paper boy throwing the paper. There's the neighbor waving. There's the person driving to work. It's just normal life, right? It's just establishing what normalcy. And then after 22 to 25 minutes, the bottom drops out. The bullet is shot. The car crashes, the bus goes over the bridge, and we're just, ah, this is horrible, right? Now, what are we wondering as the audience? We're now wondering what the lead actor, the protagonist, is going to do about it. And if the movie turns the lead actor into a sow bug that turns and rolls into a ball, into a fetal position, and that's the rest of the movie, we turn the movie off. If the lead actor says, this is horrible, I'm a victim. I'm a victim of my past. I'm a victim of my present. I'm a victim of my future, and I can't do anything because I'm such a victim. We turn it off. (laughs) What we want to do is, what do you do now, little buddy? Come on. And they're going through this debate of, you know, do I care? Do I, you know, it's true of Spider-Man. It's true of everybody. They're just, do, do I rise up and become a hero or not? Right? And now we've got a good movie because they decide to become a hero. They decide to go against evil and do whatever's necessary to rise up. And Paul is writing to the Philippians in that sense. Come on, little buddy, rise up. Be that guy. To live, Christ. Bam. To die, 
game. Game on. And that's you. That's who you are. That's the real you. And now we want to watch your story because God's writing a great story in your life. And I want to watch the movie. The frame has been stretched out. And now we're seeing it from God's perspective. And folks, God is doing a great thing in your life. It's time for us to be people of joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the possibility of living life differently. Lord, our entire society has told us that we could be happier with a better car, a bigger house, a different spouse in a different location. God, we just often are not living for something big enough. God, in the midstream of our lives, this movie that you're making of us, we want to turn from the lies and begin to believe the truth. To live is Christ, that there's nothing better to live for. For God so loved the world that he gave us. That's the best thing we can imagine. And so Holy Spirit, anoint us to live our lives and to live them well. Seeing every person, every moment with your fingerprints. To even see our failures our losses, our forgiven sin is now opportunities for grace and change, for to live as Christ. And Father, how we so look forward to seeing you in heaven, that our lives don't end, that we go on forever in your presence, discovering, learning, about who you are and how you do things in the world that you have made. God, we pray that you would make us imitators of Paul, full of joy. That you deliver us from victimhood. Make us people that choose joy, that choose joy, that choose joy so come Holy Spirit take the words that we've studied here this morning and massage them deep into our hearts we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said Amen Thanks for listening this week if you're looking for ways to serve, give or get connected, please visit our website northcoastcalvary.org